This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Sarah Rigby, online staff writer at sciencefocus.com. In this week's episode, I'm talking to science writer Ed Yong. He's the author of An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. He tells me about the staggering diversity of animal senses, from dogs' powerful sense of smell to birds' incredible colour vision. First of all, could you just tell us a bit about what your book's about, please? Yeah, An Immense World is about the sensory worlds of other animals. So how other species, from bats to elephants to manatees to snakes, perceive um, the world around them, the, the way they smell, the way they see, the way they hear, the way they feel. At the core of this book is a concept called uh, Umwelt. It was pioneered by a German zoologist named Jakob von Uxkel in the early 20th century. And Umwelt comes from the word for the German word for environment. But von Uxkel wasn't using it to refer to an animal's physical environment. He meant its sensory world, its perceptual bubble. He recognized that each species, whether human or otherwise, had its own unique blend of sights and sounds and smells and textures that it could perceive, but that many other creatures could not. And that uh, we we all um, experience the world in radically different ways, even if we are sharing the same physical space. And why do you think it's important for us to consider how other species see the world, or uh, I guess experience the world rather than see? 
Yeah, many reasons. Um, I, I think firstly, it's just fascinating. The experiences of other creatures are so different from ours. There are animals that can sense the Earth's magnetic field and use it to navigate over long migrations. There are a fish that can create and sense electric fields and use those to navigate through dark water or to communicate with each other. Even more familiar senses can have kind of extraordinary applications. Um, so bats and dolphins um, can navigate the, the world by using a kind of sonar, by producing high-pitched calls and then listening for the echoes that rebound to them. You know, just even even vision can be extraordinary. Like a duck sitting on a pond can see the entirety of the sky without having to turn its head, something that obviously we cannot do. So I think for a start, understanding the sensory worlds of other animals makes them seem more magical. It, it, it reveals sides to their lives that we haven't contemplated. It, it reveals uh, abilities that, that seem um, incredible to us. But I think there's, I think in considering their umbelt and in considering their senses, we also see our world in a new and more profound way. So things that seem familiar or boring um, or, or flat uh, take on completely new characters when you think about them through the senses of other animals. So like um, an ocean surface, um, which seems flat and featureless, through the uh, nose of an albatross is actually full of, of landmarks, full of um, odours and smells that uh, reveal the presence of food to the nose of my dog the same streets that i walk along every day many times a day change almost constantly um they they abound with new scents and smells um and every walk for him is an act of exploration so an immense world is really about both of these facets together. It's about trying to understand the lives of animals better, but it's also about using animals to get a wider and richer understanding of the world around us. So I think probably the example of another animal's senses that most of us would have some familiarity with would be dogs. We have a kind of rough idea, rough idea. Um, <laughs> we, we have a kind of rough idea of what a dog's senses are like. So yeah, I'd like to, to talk about those first. So is it true that a dog's sense of smell is really that much better than ours? It is. Um, so there is... If you do uh, like kind of artificial lab experiments, um, humans actually perform pretty well at some basic tasks, like discriminating between different odors. Um, you know, it's 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 often said that we are poor smellers. Um, pe people for for many centuries have argued that that humans have an impoverished sense of smell compared to other senses such as vision. But it turns out not not to be true. Our sense of smell is actually pretty decent. But then again. It, it doesn't quite compare to dogs for, to that of a dog for for several reasons. Um, firstly, the hardware is just different. Um, so, a dog has structures in its nose that split the incoming air into two streams. One of which goes into its lungs and is for breathing, and another of which goes into the back of the snout and is almost entirely used for smell. And it means that when the dog exhales, it doesn't wash away that air-filled uh, stream of odours. It constantly replenishes its scent without getting this sort of flickering olfactory view of the world like we get when we inhale and exhale. 
Um, a dog also, like the next time you look at a dog's nose, you might also notice that the nostrils um, taper off to the sides. Um, so it's got these little side slits. What that does, when a dog um, sniffs on the ground, you would think that every exhale would actually blow away molecules of scent that lie on the ground. But those side slits create small vortices, like little turbulent flows of air that actually waft odors into the nose. So regardless of whether the dog is inhaling or exhaling, it's getting this constant conveyor belt of smell going into its snout. So it, it has the hardware. It's also much more practiced at it. Humans aren't going around sniffing each other um, for the most part. And, and we don't use our noses in the same way. A, a dog absolutely does. Um, you know, when I, when I take my dog Typo for a walk, he spends most of his time sniffing and exploring. Um, he uses his nose very actively. And, he, you know, every walk becomes an adventure for him. And because of that, they pick up a lot more, um, you know, they're just more skilled at using their nose for things that we can't use, use our nose for, like navigation, um, like, like social connection. Right. Okay. And then when it comes to dogs' vision, it's something that's often said that dogs uh, can only see in black and white. Is that true? <laughs> uh, it isn't. Um, it is a really common um, misconception. But um, in fact, dogs do see colour. They, they just see a much narrower range of colours than we do. In our eyes, we have three kinds of colour-sensing cells. And uh, that gives us a, a visual spectrum that runs from red to violet. Now, I shouldn't really say us. Like, this is true of the average human. But millions of people have colorblindness, um, which means that one of those classes of color-sensing cells either is missing or doesn't quite work in the, in the usual, typical way. For a lot of those people, their, um, their visual spectrum, especially if they have uh, red-green colorblindness, their visual spectrum just goes from uh, yellow to blues with like whites and grays in the middle. That actually is exactly what a dog's vision is like. It's also what the vision of a lot of um, other mammals, um, like horses, um, is like. Um, so yeah, they very much do see color. But for example, like when Typo looks his, at his bright red chew toy, that's going to look like a, a dark, muddy yellow to him when when he looks at um one of his violet toys that's going to look more like a deep blue right i see um and there's sort of a an almost a meme going around the internet about this idea that there are some like extra colors out there that humans can't see but other species like the mantis shrimp can see so right. are there are there extra colors so there are extra colours. Um, th this answer is a little complicated. So firstly, there, there are extra colours, absolutely. Um, birds, for example, are tetrachromatic. So they have four kinds of colour-sensitive cells in their eyes. Red, green, so mostly that are maximally sensitive to red, green, blue, like ours, but also uh, to ultraviolet. That doesn't just extend their visual spectrum into the margins. It unlocks an entire new dimension of colours that they can see and that we can't see. It means that things like their own feathers are going to look very different to a bird than to us. It means that there are this, there's this huge range of what are called non-spectral colours that, that are the equivalent of a purple for us, right? Purple is a mix of red and blue. For birds, you know, there might be colours that are like red plus ultraviolet or blue plus ultraviolet and all the shades thereof. This whole world of colours to which we are completely oblivious. You, you mentioned the mantis shrimp. That's, so 
That's complicated. Um, there is this. So, for for people who don't know, and most people don't know what mantis shrimps are. They are a, a group of crustaceans, you know, a, a, a distant relatives of crabs and lobsters and, and shrimp that are famed for a few things. So one is punching things incredibly hard, and another is having um, this this crazy color vision system um, in their eyes. You know, we have three kinds of color sensing cells. Birds have four. Mantis shrimps have. 12 possibly more and so people have assumed like maybe it's that maybe they have um you know if, if birds are unlocking a new dimension of colors then what are mantis shrimps doing right like they must have this incredibly um rich kaleidoscopic rainbow that to which they perceive the world turns out to not be the case mantis shrimps are actually substantially worse at discriminating between different colors than humans or basically any an- other animal that's been studied and it seems that their style of color vision is just radically different from that of any other animal. Like rather than like turning the the, the rainbow into like tiny tiny chunks uh, and discriminating between them, it seems to actually turn it into like the, the equivalent of a children's coloring book. Like everything gets collapsed down into uh, one of these twelve basic hues, um, and all that information is sent directly to their brain without a lot of processing. So. Their color vision seems to be actually very simple, but also very fast. Um, the closest analogy that we have to it is is actually um, what satellites do, rather than what like other animals do. What, what do you mean by like what satellites do? Okay, so <laughs> right, so we have three kinds of color sensing cells in our eyes, right? But we can discriminate between like a million different kinds of different colors. And, and the reason we can do that is the the signals from those cells don't just go directly to the brain. The nervous system adds and subtracts them, and and uh, and tra- and and compares the signals against each other, and then sends that to the brain. And that kind of processing is called opponency. It's how we go from three types of cells to millions of colors that we perceive. A mantis shrimp doesn't seem to do any of that. It just sends the data straight to the brain. And and then, like, all the information from its uh, 12 color-sensing cells seem to just... It, the idea is that it maybe just gets compared to, like, a lookup table of colors. So maybe if cells, like, 1, 5, 6, and 7 go off, that's yellow. Or, you know, if, if it's, like, 3, 7, and 8, then maybe that counts as blue. It's a very different but much faster way of sensing color, which suits an animal that um, is noted for uh, extreme speed. Right, okay, I see. Uh, So now back to dogs and their vision. I've noticed that my dog sometimes can't even see a biscuit that's on the floor right in front of him. (laughs) So why is that? Does he just have particularly bad vision or do dogs in general uh, have have worse vision than us? (laughs) This is is a great question. I... um, so one of my caveats for this book is I can't explain why your pet does the weird thing that it does. <laughs> and like, uh, right. But like all of us who, who live with animals know that like they, they sometimes do weird things that are very hard to explain. Um, so it could be a visual thing. Dogs do uh, dogs and actually most other animals, except for birds of prey, have less sharp vision than humans do. Humans are notable in the animal kingdom for having exceptionally sharp eyesight. So it's possible that he doesn't see the biscuit. It's possible that he doesn't recognize it as something. It's 
sometimes I've noticed that typo. Um, so typo um, is very, very good at finding treats with his nose. Like we play, we play sniff games with him, where we'll hide bits of kibble like around the living room, often like you know under a, a bit of carpet or you know behind like behind one of his favorite toys or something like that, and he'll he'll find it very quickly. There are some moments when he just seems to struggle in ways that are inexplicable given how good his nose normally is and and often it's usually like i find it's when the um the food is like right next to something like when it's like next to the leg of a piece of furniture and i wonder if there's something about the ways in which um the presence of like a solid object like changes the way it changes like airflow airflow patterns or um like somehow masks the smell of the food but i i don't know like i think these are these are the kinds of questions that i think are always worth asking and like when you start thinking about the umbelt of an, another animal i think you can you know you you start like coming up with really interesting hypotheses for for why um for why your pets are behaving in this strange way so you mentioned that humans' vision is quite exceptional in the animal kingdom. So what about our other senses? Our, our other sense, do we have any other senses that are quite exceptional or are we just otherwise kind of normal? No, we um I mean we are very good in a lot of respects. So um the 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 sharp the acuity of our vision is certainly um a, an obvious one. Um our sense of touch is very good. Um, you know, our, our fingertips are exquisitely sensitive, you know, even down to the nanoscale. Like people have done amazing experiments where humans have been able to, you know, detect the the difference between two um synthetic surfaces that um whose you know whose roughness differs by by tiny, tiny amounts. So yeah, we have we have very sensitive fingers. Our hearing is decent. Our sight is sharp. Our color vision is, uh, you know, not as not as wide as that of a bird, but it's wider than that of uh, a lot of other mammals. So, what animals do you think have the most amazing senses? Gosh, it's. It's extremely hard to choose. And, you know, I, I do want to clarify that I think, um, I say early on in the introduction that An Immense World is not a book about superiority. It's a book about diversity. And that, that often, like, I think we become fascinated by the senses of other animals only when they surpass ours. Um, so when, you know, a creature hears better than we can or, or smells more things than we can. That This book is about the ways in which animals differ. It, some, some, in some cases, like their senses can be much simpler than ours. In some cases, they're amazing, I think, just because they're incredibly different. So, you know, I, I write about jumping spiders, for example, um, uh, animals with uh, uh, with four pairs of eyes and that track and hunt their prey using vision. The two central eyes on a jumping spider are the largest and the sharpest. They do um, color vision and they do um, detail. But the eyes on the side of those are what the spider uses to track movement. So it has like it has done this weird division of labor between its sets of eyes, so that tasks that exist within our one set of eyes get split between different pairs, which is just wild to me. You know, if you block the two side pairs of eyes on a jumping spider. It can't track movement, even though it can see very well. 
And it, it, it's that sort of thing that blows my mind, just the, the very different ways in which a sense like vision, even one that, like, that's familiar like that, can operate in a different creature. And so, so far we've talked about most of the sort of obvious senses like vision and sound and smell, but the, obviously there's there's more senses as well that don't come under the sort of traditional five senses. And one of these is pain. I was surprised to read that there's a lot of controversy about, you know, which animals feel pain. So why why is that? Why isn't it sort of obvious? Yeah, um, as one um, scientist who works in this field told me, and um, people have pretty strong opinions about this. Um, a lot of people either feel that some people feel that animal um, think that animals just don't feel pain uh, in the same way that humans do, and others are convinced that all animals feel pain in exactly the same way that humans do. And very few people are sort of agnostic in, in the middle. I, I think that pain, the experience of pain, varies across the animal kingdom just as the experience of hearing or or vision does. I think a lot of the controversies around whether, for example, fish feel pain or crustaceans feel pain or insects feel pain stems from the fact that pain, unlike um, the other senses, is unwanted. You know, it's one of the only senses we we try to avoid. It's a sense that we try and stop ourselves or other creatures from um, experiencing. And it comes with a huge amount of moral and ethical, um, you know, and, and often economic baggage to it. So, like, the stakes are very high. And, and I think for a long time, a lot of people have argued that, for example, fish don't feel pain. Um, that the, you know, wriggling of a hooked fish is, is more of a, a reflex than, than anything else. I think that's not true. I think there's a lot of evidence now showing that they they do have some experience of pain. That they behave in ways that are analogous to a human when we we um, when we have injured parts of ourselves. But I don't expect that experience to be the same as, as ours. You know, I think there are going to be differences. So um, one example I write about in the book, squids and octopuses are part of the same group of animals called cephalopods. Um, they are related to one another, but they, their experience of pain seems to be really different. Um, for a squid, when it gets injured in a specific body part, like the equivalent to, say, you stubbing your toe, it seems to feel pain across its entire body. Its entire body seems to be hypersensitized to further stimuli. It's, a, it's as if you stubbed your toe and then suddenly your shoulder became really sore. And that might be because a squid has short arms. It can't reach most of its body parts. Even if it knew where it was injured, it couldn't really do that much about it. Far better for the entire animal to act as if it was in peril uh, and take like protective measures accordingly. An octopus, having longer arms and being much more dexterous, absolutely can inspect and care for parts of its body and therefore does seem to know which parts of its body have been injured when it, when when they are. Um, you know, if, it, if one of its arms loses a tip, the octopus will cradle that arm and, and groom it and care for it, much like I would if I burned my finger. So even here, across like in, in two creatures that we think of as being quite closely related, their, their experience of pain is going to be very, very different. And, and I think that this question of do animals feel pain or not, as if uh, that's asked as if the answer was just a simple yes or no, aligns a lot of the complicated reality that that, um, that you know the, that diversity that this book is all about. So on the basis of animal senses as a whole, so pain, but also, you know, smell, vision, that sort of thing. 
Are there any animals that you think that we should be treating better? Honestly, I think we should be treating them all better. You know, regardless of whether, whether um, you know, how people feel about the, the debates around animal pain or not, I think there are good moral reasons to treat them well and to treat them ethically and to try and minimize any harm that, that, that occurs to them. Part, the last chapter of this book is about one of the ways in which we're harming animals without really recognizing it, and that's by flooding the environment with sensory pollution, with light and with noise, that disrupts, waylays, um, and disturbs animals, often with fatal results. So light at night can uh, deter pollinating insects away from flowers. It can lure hatchling sea turtles away from the sea and to, um, up, up a beach onto a road. Noise can push um, birds and many other animals away from habitats that they would quite happily live in. It can drown out alarm calls and mating calls and all the other noises that animals need to hear in their environment. We don't really think of these things as problematic, but they are, and they are causing um, they're, they're causing severe harmful consequences for much of the world's wildlife, and they're disconnecting us from the wilderness um, around us, um, and that might exist even in our own backyards. I hope that in in reading about this book and in thinking about the umbelt of of other animals, we also uh, come away with a deeper appreciation of the ways in which we're forcing them to live in our umbelt to their detriment. And just finally, what three things do you think we all should know about animals' senses? I think firstly, just that they are so different from ours. It's so easy to anthropomorphize animals and to believe that their experience of the world is is the same as ours. It's not. It's not for, you know, for for things that we think are obvious, like vision, um, pain, our, our feeling of what is hot and what is cold, all of these things differ across the animal kingdom. I think we should understand that our experience of the world is constrained by our biology. We exist in this powerful illusion that our senses create in which we our in which we feel like our experience of the world is complete. It's all that we have. So we think that's all we get to have. And that's not true either. Um, you know, what we experience is just a thin sliver of the fullness of reality. And I think only by really contemplating the lives of other creatures do we get a sense of the true immensity of the world around us. And I think just finally that all of this stuff is worth knowing on its own terms. A a lot of people study animals to learn more about, you know, as inspiration for technology or to get lessons about our own lives. I think they are worth learning about in for their own sakes. And I think they're worth preserving and saving for their own sakes. Every time a species goes extinct, it's not just that we lose the creature it's that we lose a way of understanding the world. And that's truly tragic. It means that, that, that our reality becomes a little bit thinner and a little bit narrower. And I'm hoping that by showing people the, the sort of magnificence lurking even in creatures that we're very familiar with, they, it will motivate them to have more impetus to, to care about and to protect those, um, those creatures. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Ed Yong. If you want to know more about animal senses, check out his book, An Immense World. Or to hear him tell me about all the types of sense that humans don't have at all, head over to Instant Genius Extra, available only on Apple Podcasts. 
the June issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. Thank you.